This is the Foreign Affairs Inbox, a podcast providing analysis of critical global issues by the Elliott School of International Affairs here at George Washington University. And I'm your host, Koji Flindo. Today, in our inaugural episode, we're joined by Dean Ruben E. Brigadie II. In addition to being our dean here at the Elliott School, he's also a former U.S. ambassador to the African Union, amongst a host of other U.S. government, diplomacy, and foreign policy positions in the past. So here to talk about the issues to watch in 2019, we have Dean B. Pleasure. Good to see you. Thank you for being here. So I guess just to kick us off, what are the top five international issues that keep you up at night in 2019? I personally remain deeply concerned about America's image in the world, given how not only in the last couple of years our current administration has completely written the rule book on a number of our close alliances, um, but I also quite frankly worry about what our challenges in terms of governing ourselves here at home mean for our ability, our soft power, frankly, to help influence events abroad. As we sit here uh, at this podcast, the government of the United States has remained shut down for the 32nd day in a row. It is not clear when that is going to change. Much of the rest of the world looks at that with incomprehension. Uh, So in addition to the obvious soft power impacts, there are real world impacts in terms of our ability of our diplomats to do our jobs abroad, our law enforcement and counterintelligence officials to continue to protect the United States. Obviously, you know, the Coast Guard to protect our borders. These are all incredibly challenging issues. Yeah. You mentioned that a lot of people, a lot of countries are looking at the United States with incomprehension right now. But there are also a a sizable number of countries that look at the United States as a green light now. Countries like the Philippines, like Rodrigo Duterte, who view the United States as historically being a country to call out human rights abuses and now being one that seemingly lets them slide. So how do you see Donald Trump's rhetoric as influencing the way that different countries interact in the international system? Well, I would say it's not simply President Trump. When former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson was new to the State Department, he was quite clear that uh, while the United States has its own sets of principles, we will not be focusing on questions of democracy or good governance or human rights to the extent that in his judgment it would impede our other more pressing foreign policy imperatives. So it's not only a question that the president himself has said that he has an affection for so-called strong leaders. It is a broader critique on the role of principles, particularly as it relates to human rights and fundamental freedoms that have in our current foreign policy. Now, in fairness, this is a perennial debate, has been at least since Woodrow Wilson, on the appropriate balance between our ideals and our interests. But something I think is markedly different currently, and it's not a partisan issue one way or the other, but it is certainly a difference as relates to the emphasis this administration is putting on those matters. And what do you see as a sort of ideal balance between those ideals and those interests? In other words, what would you be looking for the current administration, our current government, and also going forward once we have a new government? What would you like to see them do on regards to democracy promotion, human rights, the U.S. standing in the world? Again, as I said, in full fairness, this is challenging for every administration. There have been reasonable critiques of Democratic presidents who focused more on some matters of human rights or, frankly, that failed spectacularly. One can think of, for example, the failure of the United States to intervene in Rwanda in 1994. 
There have also been examples on both sides of the debate, both Republican and presidential uh, and Democratic Republican administrations that have erred too far on the other side. I mean, this is not arithmetic. Trying to understand as a matter of judgment how one balances in a dynamic way human rights and principal concerns on the one hand against hardcore strategic and economic interests is challenging. However, one can be sure that the balance starts with the assertion at least rhetorically, that America will be a force for advancing values of individual liberty and human rights in the world. And the failure to publicly, repeatedly emphasize those values, I think, is a step in the wrong direction. And so now going into 2019, we have one enduring, difficult challenge to be sure. That's something to watch not just in 2019, but going forward. But now I'd like to move us sort of to the second major issue that you see as one that's keeping you up at night and that you want to watch in 2019. Brexit. Right. That's a big one. And again, as we sit here during this podcast, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, Theresa May, has you know, had her Brexit deal uh, voted down in Parliament by historic margins. Yeah. Uh, she has solidly but narrowly survived a no-confidence vote in her government. She is still yet to submit a second plan to Parliament. And crucially, there's no majority in the British Parliament for anything either for remain or to leave or in what part you're to leave. And this will have massive consequences for the future of not only of Great Britain, they think that there is a not unreasonable risk to the continued unity of the United Kingdom, particularly given the strong sentiment in Scotland for remain vote, but also for economic engagement across the English Channel uh, with Europe. And then obviously what that means for a reordering further reordering of political dynamics within Europe itself. One other issue that's involved in the Brexit negotiations with regard to the sovereignty or the wholeness of the UK is obviously the issue along the border with Northern Ireland and Ireland and whether or not we're going to have a soft or an open border there once the UK leaves. But one thing you mentioned is that there's a tremendous impact that leaving the EU has not only on the UK but on the entirety of the European system and on the world order. And one of those is that London is the financial capital of Europe. Another one is that tons of traffic and um, movement of goods flows through the UK and through the EU. What are some other major reasons why we should be watching Brexit? There are a number. First, let me start with the Northern Ireland question, because that's not insignificant. The reason maintaining an open border between the Republican of and Northern Ireland is so important is because it was a central aspect to the Good Friday Agreement, which ended a generation of bloodshed in Northern Ireland, more than a generation, quite frankly. And there does not appear, as we sit here today talking with each other, there does not appear to be a way to simultaneously maintain an open border, thus preserving the Good Friday Agreement in its current form, and also for the United Kingdom to leave Europe and also leave a customs union. There's almost, it's almost like asking, how do you stay wet and stay dry at the same time? Right? right? You can't. Yeah. More fundamentally, if there were a way to do it, it would have been found by now. And the challenge, of course, is that that has the potential not only to reignite this conflict, which costs so many lives and so much destruction, but also, quite frankly, to have significant impact on security in the UK, generally speaking. Because the other thing we forget is 
was that the violence in Northern Ireland was also closely associated with IRA terrorism throughout the UK, one of our closest allies, which then leads to the broader question of why does Brexit matter? Why is this not simply a matter for Europeans and for the UK? And the reason is because what is lying behind Brexit? So having gone through a couple of decades, not only in Europe, but elsewhere, of essentially the notion that countries were better off cooperating with each other, working in blocks, whether it be the Soviet bloc or obviously various aspects of the Western alliance. What we're going through right now is a period of increased kind of international centripetal force and increasing uh, reversion to, to sovereignty uh, based on questions of populism. So part of the question will be in this great experiment of Brexit to reclaim British sovereignty and everything that means, not only in terms of the ability to do economic trade deals, but also culturally speaking and having tighter control of who comes across which borders. What are going to be the lessons that are going to be learned by that, by other countries in Eastern Europe, across Africa, as the African Union finally becomes more and more of a force on that continent in the context of Southeast Asia? So this is a story which I think has ramifications far beyond the question of whether or not you'll still be able to buy you know, French cheese in Yorkshire. That's a good way of putting it. So let's move on to your third issue then. What should we be looking out for? One of the things that I am particularly concerned about is how other nations seeing the dysfunction, quite frankly, in Washington are hedging their bets around the world, whether it be the French and the Germans leading the way for much of the rest of Europe, increasingly coming to question the commitment of the United States to NATO and therefore trying to think through how they approach their own security, not only in terms of military material, but also, frankly, in terms of coordinating their own foreign policy. Whether we see how our colleagues in, in East Asia, in Japan in particular, but also in South Korea, unsure of American commitment, not only to their defense, but also increasingly provoking China through what clearly is a trade war that is likely to get worse or having to rethink their alliances. So two things are going to happen as a result of this. One is the world is going to have to learn how to get along without American leadership. And while there is certainly a certain school of thought in the United States that that's actually might be a great thing because great the rest of the world, the United States has been carrying that burden for too long, I advocate the exact opposite position, which is there is no scenario in which American interests are better served by the abdication of American leadership abroad. That doesn't mean that there aren't significant issues with regard to how we manage our economy. It doesn't mean that there aren't significant issues with regard to burden sharing with allies around the world. It doesn't mean that there aren't significant issues with regard to what ought to be the legitimate limits of American commitments. But it does mean that the signals that the United States is sending right around the rest of the world is that we will not be here for you. And it's quite frankly the thing that was the final straw that led Secretary of Defense James Mattis, a decorated Marine who has spent his entire life serving his country uh, in the most challenging of circumstances, made him finally say enough. And we have to be doing better if we want to not only protect our own interests, but also create an environment where other countries see their well-being tied with the well-being of the United States. One event in 2018 that certainly challenged that notion was when Trump said, well, why don't we just pull out of NATO? We might, right, if we don't get sufficient burden sharing. And so looking ahead to 2019, what are some of the events or indicators that you might be looking out for or that could trigger further movements away from the United States? In other words, what should we be watching? If I were a citizen of any of the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, 
potentially if I were a citizen of Finland, if I were basically a citizen of just about any place that had a land border with Russia right now, I'd be incredibly worried. Because I think that not only with the increase political dysfunction here in Washington with the president who has demonstrated his desire, as he did with Syria, to make a snap judgment overnight, the United States is just leaving without consulting anybody, that this is, if ever there were a time when Russia, led by Vladimir Putin, who we know sees the collapse of the Soviet Union as the greatest geopolitical calamity uh, of the 20th century, if ever there were a time for him to reverse some of those losses, historical losses, this is it. And so I would be very worried about that. And I think that this clearly, whether it be by military force or by other forms of economic and political pressure, this is something that I think would be an obvious tell to see how this period of American weakness and leadership, frankly, can embolden our adversaries in many other parts of the world. Right. And elsewhere in Europe also, there are potentially some indicators. Should, for instance, France, the UK, Germany want to continue in the Iran deal and look to circumvent a dollar hegemony in that way, that could also be an indicator. So now that we have sort of Europe out of the way, you mentioned Japan, South Korea. What should we be looking for there with regard to movement away from the United States? There are slightly different problems. The challenge with Japan is, quite frankly, given the still politically potent memories of World War II, the Japanese don't have an awful lot of natural friends in East Asia, which is part of the reason why the alliance with the United States is so important. So the extent to which the Japanese begin to try to find other ways to compensate for significant doubts about American commitment, that's worrying. There's a new story as we sat here today of Japan trying to revitalize a deal with Russia to resolve border disputes. It's something that most people don't know. Russia and Japan never signed a peace treaty following World War II. So there's a series of really quite significant territorial issues around the Kuril Islands that have yet to be resolved in this current environment. There may be, frankly, more desire to do so. Obviously, two major potential flashpoints in East Asia remain the Korean Peninsula particularly given the quixotic diplomatic overtures that President Trump has made towards Kim Jong-un, the willingness to suspend joint military operations with Republic of Korea forces as a means of trying to advance, frankly, a nebulous agenda with regard to North Korea. And then also there are any number of ways in which increasing Chinese assertiveness with regard to the maritime domain in East Asia, particularly the China Sea, as well as you know, a couple of territorial games could bring them in very close and challenging proximity with the U.S. 7th Fleet in ways that miscalculations could be really quite problematic. So there are a lot of things to be concerned about going into 2019, and one hopes that somehow collectively we're able to manage them effectively. And that sort of rounds out the first three big issues that you're watching in 2019. You've been listening to the Foreign Affairs Inbox from the Elliott School of International Affairs. If you like what you heard today, hit subscribe and rate us on wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, tell a friend. It really helps people find the show. Our show is produced by Social Grinder, and our editor is Christina Wan. Thanks to the public affairs team, Robin Kahn and Colette Kent, for their collaboration. I'm Koji Flindo. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs>